Well, good morning. Thank you, Ryan, for that kind introduction, and uh, thank you for allowing me uh, the opportunity to come and share uh, from the Word of the Lord uh, this morning. It is a privilege to be with you. As Ryan said, I do have nine children. You heard that correctly. Um, I, I like to, as he said, I like to bring a picture as as visual evidence to my nine children, and so this is our family right here. You can uh, you can sort of count them up. It's interesting. We 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 actually had nine biological children with no twins in a uh, in just under a 12 year span. So you can spend a few minutes doing the math on that and judging me. Uh, but uh, the Lord has been very good to us. Uh, we are blessed uh, with our family, and um, and, and as, as Ryan said, we we are. Uh, moving in just a few months to one of the largest global cities in the entire world, uh, Mumbai, India, where we'll work there alongside the IMB team uh, to lead a church planting movement in that city. It's an incredibly necessary work when you consider the numbers that are involved. Ryan's just said that you're, you're dealing with over 21 million people, which which is the population of Missouri Illinois and Arkansas combined living in that one little city and less than 2% of the population of Mumbai considers themselves to be Christians. So our topic of mission today is obviously something that is very near to us right now as a family and it's something that we're passionate about. And my, my hope this morning is to show you that the mission of God should be on the forefront of the heart of every single believer. It should be on the forefront of the heart of every single believer. When, when you consider the, the pervasive lostness that exists around the world, and, and not, not just lostness, but the lack of access to the gospel that exists around the world. You see, there's a huge difference between lostness and lostness without access to the gospel. The truth is, is that is that we're surrounded by lostness right now. Each of our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our social circles and our extended families are filled with people who desperately need Jesus but don't know Him. These are people who are separated from God and will spend eternity separated from Him if they don't come to an end of themselves and put their trust in Jesus as their substitute. That kind of lostness should weigh on our hearts. And part of what I'm talking about when I talk about the mission of God is reaching those people around us. But I'm also talking about lostness among people who have little or no access to the gospel, which for me is, is, is even weightier or feels even more urgent. See, as we've had the opportunity as a family to invest in India over the last several of years, we've met countless people who have never before heard the name of Jesus. Countless people who've never before heard the gospel, which means for these people that for generations, for millennia, people within those groups of people have been born, have lived their entire lives, and have died without ever even hearing the only name by which they can be saved. It means that the gospel, the, the power of God for salvation that we often take for granted in our context, the, the, the name that is above every name that we often throw around so flippantly in conversation, these people haven't even heard of them. 
The more I've experienced that kind of lostness with no access to the gospel, the less palatable that has become to me. The fact that there are 3.1 billion people throughout the world right now that don't have access to the gospel is not okay. The fact that India, a country of 1.3 billion people, is estimated to be around 90% unreached with little to no access to the gospel, that's not okay. And so my family began a journey in prayer about a year ago to seek out God's will for us in addressing that kind of lostness. And our prayer was simply that God wouldn't allow us to ignore the truth, that he wouldn't allow us to be indifferent to those type of brutal statistics or act like they're not real or act like they're not a problem. Our desire was to go anywhere and do anything at any cost to our family to ensure that people who have never before heard of Jesus get to hear about Jesus. And it was through those prayers that God called us out of our home context here in St. Louis and into the journey that we're about to embark on. It's been a beautiful process for our family. And the reason I'm telling you all of this up front is because it gets right to the heart of what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk about the motivation for mission in our lives. We talk often in the church about the mission of God, the missio Dei, but what is the motivation, the right motivation for mission in our lives? I, I, I want you to know that for us, for our family, this has been a process. The, 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 the more we've sought the Lord, the more he has revealed himself to us, and the more we have seen him for who who he truly is, the more deeply in love with him we have fallen. And the more deeply in love with him we've fallen, the more it's caused us to deny ourselves and throw down our idols. And all of that has led our hearts to being broken for the lost and for the spread of his glory throughout the world. I believe that that process that I just described, that God wants to take his church through that process especially in our context. And I'm talking about like American evangelicalism, right? That God wants to do this in our churches where, where, where in many of our churches we've become so riddled with idolatry like comfort and safety. I believe that God wants to call us out from that. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to grab that and turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, if we're going to talk about mission, what better place to start than Jesus' instructions for his church in Matthew chapter 28. Let me go ahead and pray for us again. If this is uh, just my words, we're in trouble. We need the Lord's help this morning, and so let's go to him and ask for his help before we dive into scripture. Father, we are so grateful that as we sit here this morning, God, as people who have been redeemed by your son Jesus, God, as we sit here as a, a people that you have taken possession of, God. Our, our, our hearts are hungry for what you have for us this morning, God. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, God. I pray that, um, that where someone has walked into the room this morning and they're afflicted in their circumstances, God, God, I pray that you would bring a sense of comfort. And God, I know for many of us, we might have walked in the room this morning comfortable. 
And I pray if that's the case, that you would afflict us in our comfort. God, call us to something greater. Call us to your mission for your church. God, show us your glory this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, when you look at texts like this one, and we're going to read it in just, in just a couple minutes. When, when you look at a text like Matthew chapter 28, it becomes very obvious very quickly that Christians are called to make disciples. We, we are called to share the good news. We're called to the mission of God as his ambassadors, as his ministers. Paul uh, put, puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He, he says that God is literally making his appeal through us. How crazy is that? And so the, the, the mission of God is the call on the universal church corporately, but it's also the call on individual churches like this one, and it's the call on the life of every single believer within those individual churches. If your heart has been raptured by the gospel, if the Lord has breathed life back into your soul, calling you out of death into life, out of darkness into light. If you are in Christ, you exist for the glory of God. You exist for His mission, for His name, for His fame. And that is incredibly good news, isn't it? Like, like if you are in Christ, it means that God has freed you from just an existence where you sort of plod through life trying to make a name for yourself and satisfy yourself and collect things for yourself where you are at the center of your life. God's freed you from that type of existence to a life that is fueled by and aimed at the greatest hope the greatest purpose and the highest goal, and that is the glory of God being proclaimed near and far. That's true of every single believer. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon phrased this. He said very bluntly, I'm going to have it up here on the screen, he said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You got to love Spurgeon, right? Just gets right to it. Every Christian, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, that's an easy thing to say and a really difficult thing to actually live out because it means that you have to die to yourself. This is a principle that I remind my church of all the time, that in God's economy, death is always the engine of life. Listen to this phrase. In God's economy, death is always the engine for life. Meaning if you want to experience greater life, then there are things in you that must die. Jesus made this point in John 12, 24 when he was talking about, he compared our lives to that of a grain of wheat. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. He's pointing to the fact that death is the engine of life. That's true of a seed. That, that, that was true of Jesus' own life, of course, as, as his death brought us life. But it's true of our lives as well. We know that because right after that verse, Jesus says this. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You, you see, in order for us to come alive to the mission of God, we must die to ourselves. In order for Jesus to increase in us, 
we must decrease. That's just the way things work in God's economy. You'll never get around it. And that's why a conversation about our motivation for mission is so critical for us because we have to start with the heart. Because if we don't, we might end up doing things that look right on the outside, but we'll be doing those things with hearts that are far from God. I always try to keep uh, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah 29, 13 on the forefront of my heart. In that verse, God says, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I don't want to ever find myself doing and saying things that are right, but doing and saying them with the wrong motivation and end up with a heart that's far from God. So having said all of that, here's how I'd like to approach our time this morning. I want to look at two passages that are commonly understood in the church as the primary motive for mission. So these are two of the go-to texts when a pastor wants to preach on mission. And what I want to show you is that as beautiful and as instructive and as important as these two things are, they are not the primary motive for mission in our lives. That there is, in fact, something greater that will cause us to lay down our lives for the mission of God. And my great hope is that your heart and my heart would be so awakened this morning in a fresh way that, that we walk out of here intent on leveraging everything that we have and everything that we are towards seeing the gospel proclaimed in every community, in every city, in every state, in every country of the world. Does that sound fair? So let's start with Matthew chapter 28. Now this is obviously one of the preeminent texts on mission in the entire Bible. Verses 18 through 20 uh, can, contain the marching orders that Jesus gives his disciples. This is a blueprint for the call of mission on our lives. This is what Jesus says. Verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So pretty straightforward text, right? Jesus is telling his disciples to go and make disciples, and then to baptize people who receive the message of the gospel. And then he tells them to teach these new disciples to obey his commands. It's about as clear a set of marching orders as one could ask for. And it should, it should provide motivation for believers, shouldn't it? Of course. That, that, should, that right there should motivate us to go and make disciples around us. And by the way, real quick as an aside, because I hear this question often. I hear people say, well, Jesus said that to his disciples, right? 
Like, like that, that's the context. Is this really like prescriptive or, 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 or is this a command for us? Isn't that specific to his disciples? I hear that question a lot. And the answer is, of course, Jesus is addressing his disciples. This commission has a context, there's no doubt. But it's no less valid for us today and no less a charge on our lives as it was for their lives. And there are a couple of important reasons for that. First, the instructions that Jesus gives here are in line with the entire counsel of Scripture as it relates to the role of the believer in the mission of God. This commission, what I just read, is in direct line with what the rest of the Bible says about our call to bring the gospel to the settings that God has placed us in. We could spend hours, and I mean hours, talking about what the Bible has to say about our role as ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ and as salt and light, as proclaimers of his excellencies, as men and women who are called to suffer so that people see the beauty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. We could talk about that for days and we'd realize very quickly that what Jesus calls his disciples to moves in perfect concert with every other command to proclaim the gospel that we find in scripture, but the truth is, is that we don't even have to look past this text to see how this is a call placed on our lives because of the cyclical nature of what Jesus says in these verses. He tells his disciples to go and make disciples and then to teach them to obey everything he commanded. Well, what did Jesus just command? To go and make disciples. Which means that one of the key characteristics of a disciple is that they will go out and make other disciples. In other words, a, a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus is inherently and is necessarily a disciple maker. A follower of Jesus who is unwilling to proclaim the gospel and sow the gospel into the lives of other people would be a completely foreign concept to the scriptures. In fact, I would say that the scriptures teach that's actually not a follower of Jesus at all. Right? Where we're, we're, we're not willing to look in these contexts like our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our extended family, and we're not willing to engage people and help those people love and follow Jesus, where we're not willing to do that, I would suggest that we should have a very hard conversation with ourselves about our level of love for and affection for Jesus. So there should be no question in our minds as to the authority of this commission on the life of every single believer, including you, including me. Which is why it's easy for a preacher to stand in front of a church and say, the Bible says that this is what we're supposed to do, so let's go out and do it. That, that message is absolutely true. But here's the problem. Obligation is a horrible motivator, isn't it? It's a terrible, any parents in the room, obligation, you should do this, is a horrible motivator in calling the human heart to something greater. Like you, you should might be the least effective tool there is in motivating us. Can, I'll give you an example. Can we just be honest for a second? There are all kinds of things that the Bible calls us to walk in that we know about right now that we know we should do. 
How's that going for us? Right? Not well. I, I know these are the things I should do. I know God's called me to do them, but oftentimes we don't do them. There are all kinds of things that the scripture calls us to that we know we should be walking in right now. And listen, as we grow in holiness, those things will be increasingly motivating for us, of course, but it can't be the primary motivation for us, the sense of duty or obligation. So I'm going to suggest that, that obligation or duty to the call that's been placed on our life is out as the primary motivation for mission. It's motivating for sure, but it's not primary. So what about, what about vision? What about the, 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 the picture of what God's accomplishing. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, the people will perish. So having a vision for something certainly is a motivating factor for us. If you're going to put together a large puzzle, it's way more motivating when you have a picture of what the puzzle is supposed to look like on the box top than if you didn't have that, right? So we know that a vision or a picture for something is a motivator. So what about that? So turn over real quick to Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. If you've been in the church for more than 15 minutes, you're familiar with this text. This is beautiful. You can't get much more beautiful than this vision that John has of what the culmination of this, of this mission of God will look like. Look at verses 9 through 12 specifically. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Wow. That is is a beautiful picture. I, I, know, I know it's really hard for us to do this because our minds, our minds tend to wander and we're often captivated by other thoughts like I wonder how long this guy's going to preach or where are we going to go to lunch today or any number of other things. But, but, but let's just try. Let's try to focus our minds and our hearts on this picture for just a moment. What you have here is a number of people that are beyond an ability to count. Okay? That's a lot of people. And, and this multitude, we'll call it, contains at least one person from every tribe, tongue, and nation that has ever lived on the earth. Now keep in mind that this isn't talking about what we typically think of as like geopolitical nation states. What we're talking about is groups of people within those nation states, sometimes very small groups that share a common dialect and a common culture and who identify as a people group. Sometimes you'll have hundreds and hundreds of people groups within 
what we would typically think of as a country. And what we have here is a number beyond counting that's made up of people from every single one of those small people groups, and they're all worshiping. They're, 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 they're crying out with one voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. If, if, I, could, if I could summarize what the people are doing, I would say that they are worshiping with a singular focus in their hearts and their souls and their minds. They are treasuring Christ above everything else. And they're doing it, by the way, without the slightest hint of ethnic or racial division in their hearts. Church, this is unfettered, unencumbered, sinless, pure worship of the Lord Jesus for who he is and for what he has done. It is the most beautiful picture imaginable. And yet, right now, it's hard for us to imagine how staggeringly beautiful this picture really is because of the sin still in us, because of hearts that are constantly lured away by things that we think are better than Jesus. We, we have trouble being moved by this picture the way we ought, but even with all of the encumbrances, we long for this. We, we want this. We long for the day when we won't see dimly as though we're looking through a, a, a cloudy mirror, but we are face to face with Jesus fully satisfied in him. I love the way that Paul paints this picture in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says that one day the people of God with unveiled faces will behold the glory of the Lord. That is a beautiful picture, a beautiful vision, and it should drive our hearts. Listen now, to see as many people included in this picture, no matter the cost to us. We ought to be heartbroken at the thought that anyone would be excluded from this beautiful scene and that they would, be, they would spend eternity separated from God. That thought must do something in our souls. One of the things that, that, that we get to do when we travel to Mumbai, and that my family will get to do full-time when we live there, is, is we work with this, this massive population in Mumbai of street, of street children. There are countless thousands of kids who live on the streets of Mumbai, and it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking when you interact with these sweet little kids, and, and, and you look down, and, and you see these little tattooed markings on their wrists which identify the men who own them men that use them essentially to generate money by begging during the day and doing unimaginable things at night and it's sobering when 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 you look at these sweet little kids in their faces and you realize that for most of these kids they, they will live their entire lives without hearing the name of jesus when you realize that that, that this life on earth, as brutal as it is for them to be enslaved and used their entire lives, this life is as good as it will get for them for all of eternity because without Jesus, there's no hope. That sobers the soul. And listen, that's the reality for billions of people around the world. 
My, my wife and I are brokenhearted right now as we're looking. I don't know, you probably watch the news. We're good Americans, we always watch the news. As, as, we, as we look at the pictures of these kids in Yemen right now who are st- literally starving to death, the pictures are just breathtaking in the worst possible way. And then you realize that for the vast majority of those children, that feeling of literally starving to death is as good as it gets for them because dying apart from Christ is infinitely worse for all of eternity. That is heartbreaking. Church, when, when you couple the pervasive lostness throughout the world with the absolute beauty of the picture that we see in Revelation chapter 7, that motivates us. How could it not? Honestly, if that doesn't motivate you, your soul might not be alive. That, that motivates us. But even that motivation, as strong as it is, is not what is primary for us. As powerful as that is, we're not primarily motivated by the vision of what God is doing in the world, and we're not primarily motivated by the duty to the call that He's placed on our lives, and we're not even primarily motivated by the combination of those two things. There is something far deeper and far more beautiful that beckons the soul to come and die that we might truly live. In answering that question, the question of what that is, I want to read a quote by a man named John Stott. He's one of my favorite pastors and authors. It's going to be up here on the screen. I want you to just think about this. John Stott says, The highest missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when you contemplate the wrath of God. The highest missionary motive is zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Think about that phrase for just a minute. Burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Church, please hear this. If we are going to be effectively used by God to proclaim the gospel in every single aspect of our lives, if we're going to actually submit to the Lord's call upon us to the point where it's a joy to love my neighbors, it's a joy to share the gospel with them, it's a joy to go wherever and do whatever God tells me to do for his mission. If that's actually going to happen in our lives, then we must come to understand that the primary motive for mission is worship. It's worship. That's what motivates us to the mission of God. It's an all-consuming passion to see the glory of our God fill every single corner of the earth. When I look around the landscape of the cultural Christianity that we have created in America, I see a whole lot of people who claim to love and follow Jesus who are so riddled with, with, with the idolatry of comfort and safety and so engrossed in entertainment and consumerism that the mission of God is the furthest 
thing from their minds. I see people all the time who claim to be Christians who care far more about who wins Survivor or The Voice or Lord Help Us, The Bachelorette, than they do if their neighbor actually comes to know Jesus Christ. When you add all of this up, you see, the reality is that how we spend our time and our money and our energy will always reflect what we're worshiping. Always. How we spend the resources that God has entrusted to us will always be a reflection of what it is we are currently worshiping. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21. He said very simply, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which is why in the verses just before that, he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal everything, you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust will destroy and thieves can't touch it. Here's the truth. We don't have a mission problem in our context. And this is my context, right? The church that I'm currently pastoring is like a few miles down the street. We, we don't have a mission problem in our context. We, we have a worship problem in our context. We have a worship problem. Because where, where we are worshiping ourselves and we look at the things in the world and we think that those things are better than Jesus and his glory, we will not be motivated to the mission of God because we're worshiping the wrong thing. But where we are fixated on his glory and Jesus is capturing more of our affections and our worship over time, we won't be able to stop telling people how amazing he is. And we'll go, we'll go anywhere at any cost to do it. That's just the truth. People ask me all the time now, because this even, even the IMB guys, the International Mission Board, like seasoned mission veterans are like, wait, you're taking nine kids to India? Like, are you insane? Like, even the missionaries think we're crazy. So people ask me all the time, how can you sell everything? We have. We've sold all, literally all of our stuff. If y'all have been on Vero Lane, you see the size of the house we're living in. There's 11 of us crammed in there. We're breaking codes and everything, but we've sold everything we own. People are like, how on earth can you sell everything you have and, and move your family with nine kids to a context that is closed to Christianity? It's closed to the proclamation of the gospel, right? It's increasingly hostile to Christianity, and it's an environment where, where, where living for his glory will absolutely cost you. The, the only the only way I know how to answer that question is to point people to the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. It's got to be the shortest parable in the Bible. It's one verse, verse 44. It's of the hidden treasure in the field. Now, you don't have to turn there because it's one verse. I'll just read it. But it perfectly sums up the work that God has been doing in our hearts. And I think, I think it's a beautiful way for us to sort of crystallize this conversation that Worship is the proper motivation for mission. This is what it says in Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven 
is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. Then, listen now, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's it, you see. The treasure is Jesus. The treasure is God himself. It's him. It's his presence. It's his glory. It's getting to be with him. This is a picture of worship, of treasuring Christ above everything else. And when we look at Jesus and we see that he is better than everything, we will with joy give up everything else to take hold of him. And when that happens, when that happens, we will be consumed with the things that God cares about. Do you know what God cares about most? God cares most. I know that the, the easy answer is us. It's not true. That's a lie. That's a lie of me-centric Christianity. God does not care most about you and me. God cares most about his glory filling the earth. Read the Bible. It's in there. He cares more about that than anything else. And so when we treasure him above everything else and we're near to him and we're like, I don't care about any of this other stuff. I just want to be with you. We start to care about what he cares most about. And what he cares most about is that his glory would fill the earth. And listen, it's been that way from the beginning. Even when God just immeasurably blesses his people and he's gracious to his people, it's not so that that will terminate on them. It's so that other nations will look in and say, wow, God is incredible. Have you ever heard of Psalm 67, verse 1? So verse 1 in Psalm 67 is one of those Christian coffee mug verses. You know what I'm talking about? You slap it on the side of a coffee mug, so when you walk in and it's Monday, and you're like, oh, it's Monday. You read that, and you're like, oh, Monday, not so bad. It's a Christian coffee mug verse. We love this verse. In Psalm 67, 1, it says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. You see what I'm saying? Christian coffee mug verse. We love that. Here's the problem. What we try to do is divorce verse 1 from verse 2, and we can't do that because there's a so that at the beginning of verse 2 in Psalm 67. Let me read them together. And listen to the fact that this has always been God's design. Verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among the nations. That's it. God has blessed us in this room mightily. Like, I don't know your stories at all. Some of you might be like, bro, I just lost my job or my health is failing. Listen, God has blessed you mightily. The reason he's blessing you and being gracious to you is so that people around you will be able to see how great he is and how he loves his people. It's not meant to terminate on you. Everything that we are and everything that we do moves from and is aimed at the glory of God through the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ in the world. I'm going to repeat that because it's important. Everything that we are and everything that we do moves from, it's fueled by, and it's also aimed at the glory of God through the exaltation of Jesus 
Christ and the world. That's the thing that brings all of this together for us, you see. The glory of God and the worship of His great name is what brings all other motivations together in their proper place to give us a picture of what motivation or what mission should look like in our lives. I want to end with uh, just a quote um, from another pastor that I love and respect, uh, John Piper, uh, and, and he has a lot to say on how worship is actually the fuel for mission in the church. It's going to be up here on the screen. I'm just going to read this. I want you to think about it. We're going to pray, and my time will be done. This is what John Piper says. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Listen to this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. How good is that? Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed are all on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Praise God for that day, by the way, right? Mission, no more need for missions in that day. It's a temporary necessity, Piper says, but worship abides forever. So worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. This is what God has saved us to. I was just one week ago, I was standing, one week and like three days ago, I was standing in one of the largest slums in the world in Mumbai, and we're helping lead a house church movement. Part of what we're going to do to plant churches there is to raise up house church pastors in Mumbai. And so several of our pastors that we've invested in were gathered, and all of their people, and we, we, we got this space, and there's probably... 60 or 70 of, of these um, Mumbaikers who live in that slum. And I, I was preaching from 1 Peter chapter 2, and I was telling them, I was like, listen, this says that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who you are as the redeemed living in this city. But I love because Peter goes on and he says that all of that is so that what? You know the verse? so that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's the text. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people for his own possession. That's it, you see. God has saved and redeemed and brought us in and literally through his son by taking our sin and giving us Jesus' righteousness has literally taken possession of us, but that's not for us. Now, we're beneficiaries of that, to be sure, but right now, it's so that other people around you will see God as amazing, as great. They'll see what his love is like. You don't live where you live on accident. You don't work where you work on accident. The people who are in your family aren't in your family by accident. Acts 17 says clearly that God establishes our boundaries and our dwelling places. All of that has been foreordained by God so that those people will be able to see this white-hot worship of the Lord Jesus in you, and they'll be compelled. Isn't that beautiful? Worship is the fuel for mission. Let's pray together.
Father, we are grateful for who you are. God, this great gospel is awe-inspiring. It's staggering, God. We can look into it forever, turning it like we would turn a, a diamond or a jewel, looking at different facets of it, and still, still never come to the end of just how beautiful and awe-inspiring this great gospel is. I pray this morning that you would stir worship in our hearts anew. God, give us a fresh perspective on even the redemption that we have in your son, God, to the point where it just begins to consume us. And these idols that, that we give ourselves to so easily that those things just start to look silly and we cast them down and we run to you. God, let that kind of worship well up within your church to the point where we can't not do mission. Everywhere we go, it's about telling people about the greatness of your son. Everywhere we go, it's about them seeing your love all over us. And we pray that many, right here in West County, God, right here, that many, many would come into this picture of Revelation 7, God, because of the work that you are doing through these saints, your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.